you know on the internet your people are like don't feed the trolls like when you get like negative feedback ignore it or or don't draw attention to it now i'm kind of like have i been feeding my like brain trolls and now they're like we own this you know like we determine the agenda now hello I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I am welcoming myself home. I took a very uh, nice break. It was a, a working vacation, but it was still partly a vacation. Even with being mugged, that's what France's new tourism board should have as their advertisement. Even being with being mugged, we are a great place to visit. So I want to bring out today's Employee of the Month because I have been a big fan of hers for a while. You may have seen her on Two Dope Queens on HBO. Um, She also has her own special, which I highly recommend, called Just Putting It Out There. And you can see her all around um, New York and all over the country because she's actually going to be in Texas. We spoke about that and her residency. And if you aren't able to get to see her live, guess what? You get to see her on television. She's been on Crashing, Master of None, Love, and Inside Amy Schumer. She's currently in corporate on Comedy Central, and it's about to have its season finale. And you can see all of these online as well. But I was just so delighted to be able to speak to her about what it is like to be a multi-hyphenate. What is it like to write, voice, and act? Aparna tells us. All right, I'm going to stop talking so you get to hear from her directly. Without further ado, here is Employee of the Month, Aparna Nancharla. So there are many things I want to talk about. I, I, I did want to hear, tell me about shooting a film with Paul Feig. Well, I... Who did Bridesmaids for, for people who don't know. Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters with all women cast. I... He, I think, has been a hero of mine for a while, and I think, I wouldn't even say it's a stretch to say he's probably one of the nicest humans I've ever met. And yeah. his memoir is great, by the way. Oh, I haven't read it. It's really I fun. gotta read it. He, but yeah, he's just like a lovely person, and I think he kind of solidified that idea in me that you can like reach a certain level of success and still not be an asshole. And and he would his sets would just have very humane hours and he would invite like cast people to dinner and stuff and just tried to make it a very pleasant experience i think for everyone who was on set whether it was a crew or actors yeah, yeah. i i also don't think that money makes you an asshole like, right i think i either suddenly covet something from that person mm-hmm. or that more deeply they were always an asshole yes i just wasn't aware of their presence oh right because it maybe they just have more exposure then. Yes. Yeah. yeah, because there are people who make, you know, uh, have the resources, have the money, yeah. have had the success, and yes. uh, still have, you know, a moral compass and a pulse. And I think you're right in that maybe and sometimes or. more, you know, aggressive or like erratic types, they just tend to get more exposure whereas maybe people who are like quieter and just doing the work aren't as worried about being talked about it every second but they're they're there and they're producing and they're doing all the same things just going about it a different way was this your big f- or your first big feature film? it was yeah first film so i felt very uh it was like a surreal thing that it was with paul feet because i was like what <laughs> it's not it's not you're supposed to be your first thing yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm not I wasn't at the uh, red carpet event, but you can invite me to the next one. But I, I <laughs> should ask you right now, who are you wearing right now? Well, because we have to like sort of replay what it was like to be oh, your sure. first feature. 
I think I'm actually wearing a sweater from this online. I've really gotten into online shopping in an unhealthy way. Yeah. Where I think I'm using it to cope with other things that I should be addressing directly. But I think this sweater is from this online company I found called Toast. It looks toasty. Yeah. In this cold weather since we're in New York right now. They're really into like comfortable but stylish clothing. What are the things you feel like you're avoiding right now? Mm, I mean, I do think a lot of things are around work. A lot of my anxiety stems from work. Let's talk about it. (laughs) We're here. Talk about it. Uh, Yeah, I think just that ongoing fear of am I doing enough? Am I on the right path? Am I getting worse? Am I growing? Just those constant am I enough sorts of questions. I feel like it may not go away. Like I had Nick Hornby mm-hmm. on this podcast and I highly encourage people to listen to that episode. Yeah. To anyone else, he would be oh a prolific, yeah. highly prolific writer. Oh, yeah, you could be like, he's done. He can call it a day. Same like emperor has no clothes kind oh. of questions. <laughs> but I also feel like all the people I look up to are the ones who are constantly questioning. So Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know. It's like, I guess my new battle internally is how do you make the most of having this type of a brain if it's never going to resolve? If it's never going to stop the questioning, how do you sort of function better within that? I'm so curious to be able to ask you because I've long admired how you've spoken about anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression. And, you know, you did this Blue Man uh, group podcast, a Blue Woman group uh, with Jacqueline Novak, who wrote a great book about depression as well. And in speaking about it in public, Mm -hmm. has it diminished it, elevated it, not had any effect? Like, what is. That's a good question because I think at first it was very cathartic in that. It resonated with people in a way that I was like, oh, wow, this is like a whole group of people who are dealing with these things. And it's pretty humbling that I talk about them. And then they're like, I've had that exact same thing. And then lately, I feel like I've more been in that camp where it's almost like, uh, you know, on the Internet, you're people are like, don't feed the trolls. Like when you get like negative feedback, ignore it or or don't draw attention to it. Now I'm kind of like, have I been? feeding my like brain trolls and now they're like we own this you know like we determine the agenda now and so now I'm kind of like maybe I shouldn't like be too tied to these things as like part of my identity or something because that feels also not healthy absolutely and trying to figure out that line for yourself while also pitching yourself in an industry which is uh almost zealous oh. about boxing people yes. into They're like into, what are yeah. your three adjectives yeah what are your three adjectives <laughs> i mean right you now you'd probably be like anxious depressed and uh indian would be maybe indian woman indian <laughs> like comedian and you say that instead of you know south asian or oh yeah i guess south asian is the more politically correct I'm here to help you. Yes. To teach you about you. you. I'm clearly not woke. And so you also have a a residency coming up in Texas. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, I learned about this theater through another comedian, Baron Vaughn. Who love. Yes. So great. And he had, I don't know how he found out about it, but he said he did like this residency at this little theater in like Fort Worth, Texas. And it was just like a great place to like try out, stand up like some new ideas and work on like a new hour and I think 
that is the hardest part of getting busier and having more opportunities is just finding the time to create and and hone and workshop. And I think sometimes, uh, like you were saying, you were just in France, like it's good to just get out of your usual routine and go somewhere where maybe you're a little bit less under the microscope where you can just kind of focus without all that other internalized BS that you put on yourself. Yeah. How do you do that now, though? Because you do have all of these other opportunities. You have corporate, which is Mm -hmm. airing on Comedy Central. You have a stand-up career. And um, you're also, you know, a writer and an actor. Yeah. How do you carve up? I know that no day is the same. No day looks the same. But how, how do you set aside that time? And you also have all these people who now work for and with you. I've learned in the past year there's so much power in being able to say no to things, which I had to learn. And I, because I think when we start in these industries where we just want any opportunity, you forget that at some point you're not going to be able to do everything that everyone wants you to. And I think I just had to learn to trust my gut more in terms of like, which things do I want to prioritize? And like maybe when I'm acting, I can't do as much stand up or if I'm like writing on something. So I think it's like learning to be, you know, dynamic, but not you don't have to do everything all the time, Uh, which I think maybe when you start, you think that you do and you should. Well, it's encouraged, right? Yes. Like when you go and hear people speak, they'll say, I took every, you know, I yes. said yes to everything. And, and even just sort of life advice of, mm-hmm. you know, say yes and in the most yes. simplistic Im- improv 101 right. <laughs> right. type way. Embrace it all. Yeah. Yeah. And then as you, I don't know if it's just getting older or just having less time overall, but you, yeah, you have to be more selective or you're kind of, just half-assing everything you show up to because you're tired and you're unfocused. Yeah. On that note, it is extremely hard for any comedian or most comedians uh, to segue to acting mm-hmm. career-wise because it's such a different skill set. It is. And I think, um, I mean, maybe Mitch Hedberg had a joke about that, right, about like farming. Assuming a comedian can act is like assuming a farmer is also like a chef, you know. Yeah, it is like a very good analogy. But it is, yeah, it's its own muscle. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, there there is a very much an emphasis now on being like a multi-hyphenate and doing it all. But it's its own skill. Like you can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll just do what I do on stage behind the camera. Did you take acting? Uh... I took some acting. I mean, I did the UCB thing. I did some groundlings in LA and some acting classes outside of that and some coaching but yeah it's still an ongoing process and like stand-up it's something you learn the most from just doing it so and and even just being around other more experienced actors so I think there is value in, in getting the opportunities where you actually get to do it. And I wonder sometimes if one can be even more emotionally present with mm-hmm. less education on the subject. Oh, sure, because you have less stuff you're coming to of trying to, like, do it exactly the way you learned it or something. For you, uh, I wanted to also hear about animation. You know, you do BoJack Horseman, and then you're also – you've done a, a bunch of animated shows. But I was uh, thinking about Mira Royal Detective. Oh, sure. Because I went uh, to your the offices there. I oh, know you the, did. The creator, Becca Topol. and. Mm-hmm. Um, Sasha Palladino and yeah. um, I was I was very impressed with myself because I was able to be like oh you should check out Aparna and they're like yes we have 
Yeah, that was. I mean, it's a Disney Indian uh, princess yeah. show where she's a detective. She's a detective, and yeah, I think that it's the first all South Asian cast um, voice cast, and it's been really cool. I've I've gone in. I've started to see some of the. They've shown me some of the first uh, animation that's coming together, and it's just it's really cool that it we live in a time where it's not like so bizarre to just have this you know a little girl whose experience is maybe not the same as a lot of kids growing up here but it's just like no we get to do a whole show about that and other than that she's like a kid having adventures and solving mysteries and you know a lot of people can get on board with that even if you're not a small Indian girl. I was so impressed to see the animation and to see how much research goes into these characters to, to make them thoughtful. Yeah. And I don't think I would have known that. Right. Yeah. No, they've been very, even when I've gone into recording sessions, they'll, you know, words that are in Hindi or something, they'll have someone they went to to make sure they're pronouncing it right. And yeah, they're really doing their due diligence in trying to make it authentic and and not just phoning it in. Um on that note, though, just when we were, we were talking about, you know, having a complex character, mm-hmm. I do feel as a, a female, you can tell when someone doesn't actually find women funny, like it, mm-hmm. when it's sort of not a personal thing. But in terms of marketing, sorry to use such crass language, but <laughs> it, but with entertainment to, an, you know, Indian population, it's a massive boon for them financially. Sure. So I never fully understood if, if it's just from this we don't care whether a show is critically acclaimed or, or, yeah. or we're going to get, you know, awards for it. We just want to make money. If it's from that perspective. Right. I was curious to what extent, like, Hollywood was hesitant about having uh, Indian casts. And it seems like they really were for a very, very long or, time. Yeah. Even with this economic boon or incentive. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, capitalism at the end of the day is still pretty risk averse. So it's like unless they've seen it done before and seen it do well they're like we don't know even though there's like a huge segment of people this would speak to yeah it is a little odd what finally shifts the dial on stuff and who knows if it's just it reached a tipping point with a bunch of different social progress movements or where hollywood was at but it is strange like what finally enables change at the end of the day because you're right it does feel like it's almost overdue and most progress, I think, usually feels that way. And and logical. Like, yes. It, it wasn't yes. even like, you know, this is the thoughtful thing to do. Right. But if I'm trying to think in the head space yeah. of someone who just cares about a bottom line. Yes. That's where I got confused. And I yeah, like, I don't know. I Maybe that's the, <laughs> the that's a, the insidiousness probably of racism. Um. What do you enjoy about doing a show like BoJack Horseman, which is a very funny, mm-hmm. you know, animated comedy show versus doing an, a children's animated show? Well, I think the I mean, with children's animation, I think you just have to be a little bit more energetic than my natural resting state. And I think with BoJack, you can be a little bit more, you know, it's a little more conversational and like understated compared to maybe children's animation. But the thing I like about BoJack is it is so dark for an animated show. And I think that's new and different. And I mean, I think they were lucky in that it was like Netflix. So they were they're like willing to take chances on a lot of different programming. But but I think the spark that it hit for people, I think, probably surprised them. 
before you had said, you know, that you weren't sure if you always wanted to talk about anxiety yeah. and depression. And the reason I thought about this is because I did Employee of the Month at the Kennedy Center with an oh. illustrator from BoJack Horseman, who's an, oh. Mike Hollingsworth, who's a fabulous Oh, yes, because I think I've person. done Picture This that he's done. Yes. Yeah. And then it made me think that maybe you've also done that, meaning that because mm-hmm. you've had a half hour special. You know what I mean? Like maybe you feel like you've written about this subject. Oh, sure. And want to now write about, I don't know. Tell me. Yeah. Well, I think at the end of the day as like a an artist, I think I my main goal is just to talk about what's driving me at that moment. And I think the fear is that sometimes when you're pigeonholed or people associate with you you with something they'll be disappointed if you stop talking about it or don't talk about it in that way anymore and I don't think I'll ever stop talking about it if it's still something that affects my life but I just don't I think we're we're all so complicated and and we all evolve so much in over the course of our lives that it would be it feels unfair to to be like well this is her thing (laughs) you know none of us are like just a thing it's just how the market chooses to define us. And so that to say that, you know, today I'd like to talk about dragons and tomorrow yeah. I'd like to talk about Twinkies or maybe you'd like to talk about dragon-sized Twinkies or dragon-shaped Twinkies right. or dragons eating Twinkies. Yeah. These are these are all, f- there's room. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's always the critical reception of whatever you put out into the world. People might be like, oh, I liked her other stuff better but but in the end of the day that's not I don't think that's your job as an artist to be like what do they want um who do you turn to for advice if anyone I mean I found it's very helpful to talk to your peers I think a stand-up can be very isolating as an art form in that you're performing by yourself a lot of the time if you're a solo performer And it's easy to get in your own head or compare yourself to someone else who's doing something completely different. So I think it's important to talk to someone else and then be like, oh, you're having the exact same struggle as I am. And you're other than that, we're completely different. So, yeah, I think it's so easy to get caught up in your own BS. And and it's so important to to remember we're all probably feeling that way. But I think. Social media lately, I think I've pointed to as a lot of where I'm getting some of my demons from. So I think I need to sort of cut back on it or just form a healthier relationship to it and cut back on it probably. So much of your career is based on introducing people to your work through Mm -hmm. social media as well as a a space for you to try out jokes. You know, for someone like me, when uh, Trump was elected, it was at best an excuse for me to be like, I do not want to be anywhere near this. It actually made me really anxious and angry Yes, um, that Twitter and and Facebook and Google, you know, were not taking uh, the infringement on elections more seriously. Yeah. And it was easier to disengaged for me. Mm-hmm. But for someone like yourself who so much of your career is wrapped up in, yeah. the, in this relationship to your audience and fans on social media, how do you disengage? Well, I think that's why it feels like a slippery slope. And I think lately I've been negotiating boundaries around, you know, I'll I'll post and I'll put stuff out there, but I don't need to read all the feedback for everything I post. And it, like, there, what am I gaining from, you know, reading some nice things, but then a mean thing that I'll then ruminate on for a week or more. So I think in the at the end of the day, I, the siren call of social media is that it 
it gives you the idea that all the information is important and you should have all the information all the time. But I think at the end of the day, you're like, I don't think I need most of this information. Like what what I'm actually gaining from it is it's a good writing exercise. I can put little stuff out, but I don't need to know exactly what everyone thinks of every single thing I put out there. And you mentioned how lonely stand-up can be as a Mm -hmm. profession, and I certainly concur uh, as a writer. Um, Do you work from home? Do you work out of a co-working space? Are you just at SoulCycle and you just put a computer up and then everyone has to deal? I have no idea. I'm just making that up. I bet there's at least a couple people who do that. But I primarily work at home, but I found that it helps me. Like home, I think, has its own associations, especially if you're a freelancer where it's like, work is then tied up with your living space. And so I, I'm really thinking about maybe renting out like a writing space or something where you can just be like, now I'm going to work. Like, I think I need that basic uh, break to leave my apartment and go somewhere else and be like, now you write or whatever. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to like enlist you and Joe. That we get like a little writing room at some yeah. point <laughs> that, you, that you can just go. Because the one nice, uh, one of the nice things I find about being around someone who is also solo in their work mm-hmm. is that we have similar generally uh, yes. work habits and understanding yes. if someone needs to go to an audition or whatever it is. And that right. similar kind of flexibility, but also flexibility towards being alone and not necessarily talking. Yes. Because I think I have tried Together to alone. do that with friends where I will be like, let's just meet at a coffee shop and both just work separately. But I just need another person for the accountability of like, you're here, you're here to work. And so are they. And if you leave, you're going to break the system. I will be your accountability buddy. Thank you. Okay, so just putting it out there was, I believe, your first album? It was, yes. And you're working on another one? I am, but I would say it's still very much in the beginning phases. I have some, I don't know if other stand-ups go through this, but I have sort of this thing where I put, I've recorded some material that wasn't on that album, but I've since put it out on, like, you know, Comedy Central and, like, Netflix, so I'm like, should I still record that material as an audio album? I guess it's a different thing, but I haven't. Now I'm at a point where I haven't done it in so long that I'm like, it's all kind of rusty. Well, on that note, I just had a logistical question. Mm-hmm. Do you use a quill pen? You know, how, how, what is the, the medium, the um, resources you use? To- I'm still a big handwriter. I like writing things by hand. I feel like it comes out of your brain in a different way, but... I definitely get ideas out faster if I'm typing. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you co-led the Women's March in New York at some point? I did. The, I first? like co-hosted the rally. There was like a little rally before the march, and I co-hosted it last year, which is essentially just like getting the crowd pumped and then bringing up speakers. Okay, yeah. so th- th- that was a segue into my question. Yeah. Of, what is it like to be asked to do things uh, some things that you're going to be excited to do that, yeah. you know, maybe you hadn't thought about, oh, uh, this sounds like a great thing. Um, are you ever asked to either lead things or write about things where you're like, you know what, I, I actually not sure if I'm the person to be, you know, discussing the uh, Pakistani uh, yeah, conflict. Definitely, because I think sometimes people will just have an idea of who you are as a person. And then they'll be like, oh, we need this person in our event. And then I'll know for sure that if I did stand up there, I would bomb. And then I'm like, I know you think that I would do well, but I definitely won't. And 
here are some people who might be a better fit for your event. Yeah. And on the flip side, like post-Trump, did you feel like you wanted to become more politically involved or, or have you always been politically engaged? I think it did engage me more. Like a lot of people, I felt a, a bit blindsided by it and wanted to at least do my utmost to kind of help against some of the more nefarious things that the administration is doing. But yeah, sometimes it is like, what exactly is the best use of my resources and platform? And I think I'm still trying to figure that out sometimes. And some of that is showing up to things, but some of that is just amplifying, I think, other people who are doing the work in a constructive way. So I think it's it's kind of trying to find the path of most help, but also just what is fulfilling to you personally, like what do you derive meaning from in terms of trying to be useful in this environment? And are you working on any writing projects right now? Any... Um I know you're working on an Apple show. Yeah, that just wrapped up. Uh, but yeah, I was working on this from the It's Always Sunny guys, Rob McElhaney and Charlie Day. They were doing like a workplace comedy about a video game company. So Fun. I was just working on that. Um, but I believe they're just wrapping up shooting on that. But I don't know when it's coming out. Apple's been pretty hush-hush about their network. Because there's so much emphasis, particularly, I would say, on, on females to be multi-hyphenates. Sure. Do you feel pressure to say, I'm going to act and write in the show? Or are there things that you would like to create or are creating that you hope to act in as well? I think if I made a show, I like sort of working in a group or like an ensemble, kind of like corporate. So I think it would have to be kind of a group-based uh, comedy. But I do, yeah, I think I'm always looking for opportunities to maybe write a show around like a, a sensibility or like around other people that I find very funny. And yeah, I think that that's always kind of the end goal is to be able to create your own work and your own like playground, which I feel like corporate has been for me because that show was made by my friends. So it does feel like one of those jobs where you're like, oh, I guess I'm just working with my friends and making something that I think is really funny because I think they're really funny. Yeah. Your first job was on uh, FXXXXX. It started out as FX (laughs) and then went to FXX. Yes. Um, You know, W. Kamau Bell's uh, Mm -hmm. Totally Biased. Uh, What did you get out of working on that show? I believe that was your first writing job. Yeah. I mean, that actually was probably the driver that made me more politically aware because I think Kamau and a lot of people he had on the show, like Hari Kondabolu and Dwayne Kennedy, they're all very uh, politically loud and like aware of the different issues happening at all times. So I think that since I came to that show kind of from a more, a less knowledgeable perspective. And I think that show kind of opened me up to a lot of the uh, the issues that have been going on for many years. Yeah. And I think that was helpful in a way of seeing how you can still bring those things up and still be funny and not necessarily be as margula- marginalizing as we can sometimes be in the mainstream media. Yeah. And I was curious, discipline-wise, because when I when I can just write 
on my own, mm-hmm. I'm great. I'm good to go. Sure. But to actually balance it with the, you know, 900 other logistical yes. things that come up and hopefully continue to come up more and more, right? Because yeah. that means you're auditioning and that means you're getting to mm-hmm. be asked to, to write more projects or, and you know, perform or host in my case. Yes. You know, uh, and I have just tremendous challenges uh, balancing oh. the more things that one needs to get done in a day when yeah. I actually prefer to have hours mm-hmm. just to write. I was curious, did you get any habits or kernels of wisdom from being on a writing staff on two shows? Yeah. Totally biased and also you've been on um, Late Night with Seth Meyers. Yeah, I mean, both of, well, Kamau's show was a weekly and then it became a daily briefly before it was canceled and then Seth was a daily. So I think there is a rigor in those talk shows where, you know, you have to have a product by a certain deadline and so you have to you know you have your morning meeting where you throw around ideas and then people just get assignments and then your job is just to finish a draft so I think there is a a discipline in in those environments of just like you have to have something by this time because we have to have a tv show by this time so I think that was helpful for someone who given loose non-deadlines will very much fritter away all the time, which is how I am usually. Yeah. Yeah. But you simultaneously have not gone back to writing on a variety show. Yeah. Is that because that was never the goal? Is that, like you know... I think so. I think for me, like, I got sort of experience out of those work environments, but at the end of the day, I was like, I don't think my passion is, like, writing about topical stuff as much as, yeah, like, more of these... um character-driven or, like, story-driven shows are more what I think interests me. I think also we're pigeonholed into that from stand-up because in in part pigeonholed and in part, you know, that is where you can break in initially. Yes, yes. And for me, like, writing dramedies or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, in-depth characters is actually where I flourish but right, absolutely it was always, you know, what what late show would you like to write for? Because I think it's just like, oh, stand-ups, no jokes. And those shows are all about jokes. Yeah. They just assume we're so funny. And it's just like, bop, 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 bop. <laughs> every like, minute. Every minute you're just, your take on what happened. That's all we're doing. Um, I did want to ask a little bit, if it's possible, about uh, Brody Stevens. Sure. Um, I was so affected by that. And I mm-hmm. have lost uh, loved ones to uh, suicide and, yeah. and, and depression. And he was such a lovely human being. And I was just curious to what extent, if any... You have been affected by Brody or by other. Yeah, I mean, Brody and I knew each other. We I wouldn't say we were close friends, but I think he was one of the first comedians that when I lived in L.A., I kind of noticed he was a fixture of the scene and and was just had sort of a lovely relationship with everyone. And when he came to a show, I felt like the room would just light up and he could kind of just change the dynamic of a room just by virtue of being himself, which was a very kind of singular comedic force. And just like a person who lived very, like lived his experience very loudly and very authentically. And some of that was, you know, his demons. But I think you, we are in the, in an industry that can be pretty unforgiving in in the lows and the rejection and i think no matter how well you're doing on paper or um to an outsider you you could still be having like a very hard time which i think is in any industry but 
I think in ours, it's just amplified more publicly than maybe another one. And yeah, I think it, it just shocked me, not in that I was like, he obviously didn't have his demons that he dealt with, but he just seemed like someone that I was like, oh, I just can't imagine the scene without him. And I think in a way, I feel like that about a lot of different comedians. So I think it was just another reminder that it's like we're not promised anything by anyone. And and I also don't judge people for anything because it's like we very much don't know what someone else is going through on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the chasm between the excitement that he brought to comedians yes. watching him yes. and what he was suffering with is, is what is so painful yes. to me. Simultaneously, I saw this fabulous Robin Williams documentary, mm-hmm. and Bobcat um, Goldthwait does this incredible job of revealing how, at the end for Robin Williams, it was not manic depression. Right. He had an illness. Yes. And this is what, you know, whether it's the symptoms from the medication, whether it's the symptoms from the, the condition. And I, I was so grateful to him yeah. for bringing this up because I think both for individuals, you can make these sort of uh, very easy uh, sort of pseudo-Freudian or couchside, you know, uh, proclamations yeah. and simultaneously pathologize people when it, it is a condition like diabetes or, or whatever right. else the condition it's is. It's like it's easy to see the narrative we want to see or that we've seen before, and it could very much be something completely different. What are some of the things that you are, are working on right now? Well, I am... I mean, my main thing right now, because I just came off this writing job, is kind of getting back on the stand-up grind and and working out, you know, on next hour or whatever it is, and then going back on the road with it. So that is kind of where my energy is right now. And yeah, and I mean, other than that, sort of acting gigs around that. But yeah, right now, focus is on writing. Awesome. Yeah. And the the writing gig that you just came off of? That was just the Apple show. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I want to recommend that everyone go check out Corporate on Comedy Central and to go to Aparna's website, her Twitter. I absolutely have love and and have been in love. Oh. I'm admitting it with your with your stand for so long. Uh, people can check it out on Spotify. They can go to your website. They can go to Twitter. They can go wherever they would like. Google is usually helpful, I find. But Google's you can also helpful. use a phone book uh, sure. to find you. And um, thank you so much for being an employee of the month. It's been thank a real you pl- for it. What pleasure. An honor. I want to thank my guest. I want to thank Cameron Drews for editing this together. I want to thank Lady Rizzo for our fantastic theme song. And I want to thank all of you for listening. If you enjoy Employee of the Month, please go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. Get on the mailing list. We have very exciting news coming up. And that's it for this episode. I hope you have a good one, and I'll talk to you next week. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks for listening to Employee of the Month.